Yakko Warner sings all of the words in the English language. Hardvark abating, a pet abdicating, abandon a base and a breast. A blaze and ablution, abhor and abusion, abbreviate, abbey obsessed. Abduct and ablation, abridge and abrasion, abash and abrupt and abride. Abscond and absentia, absent abstentia, abdomen ably abide. You can hear vastly different English accents and dialects spoken throughout New York City, and when you broaden that scope to the rest of the world, you start to get the feeling that our language, while shared by millions of people globally, can actually be quite different. On today's Please Explain, we will find out how English came together as a language in the first place, how it's evolved over the years, and where it might go in the future. And joining us now is Simon Horobin, professor of English language and literature at the University of Oxford, author of How English Became English, A Short History of a Global Language. It's published by Oxford University Press. I'm very pleased to welcome Simon Horobin to our show today. Hello. Hi. Thanks very much. And uh, for our listeners, if you have a question about the past or future of the English language, you can give us a call. Our number is 212-433-9692. You can also write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash lopate or tweet us at Leonard Lopate. Uh, Professor Harbin, English is spoken by 450 million people around the world and at least a billion people counted as their second language. How do those statistics compare to other languages like Spanish? Well, it's it's the biggest in in terms of um, if you include um, second language speakers as well. But you're right, there are others that are, it's sort of in competition with or are competing with it, like Spanish and Mandarin is the other one that has a very large number of speakers. I think what's particular about English is just how widely spread it is across the world and also how important it is in terms of its function. So Mandarin is mostly spoken by the Chinese who then learn English so they can communicate outside China, whereas England, um, English is a language that is, that is used in, in so many different spheres that it has that greater importance. Wasn't French once considered the global lingua franca? Yeah, it's had its day, unfortunately. And, you know, if you go further back, then, then Arabic was also a lingua franca. And, and you can see, you know, uh, Portuguese is obviously still, um, still used in South America. And you know, it goes back to, to the periods in which um, these uh, different nations were forming their colonies. Um, and there are still relics of those. But, um, you know, languages come and go. And it's, and it's often about, you know, how successful they are in terms of forming those kind of um, colonies and and the British Empire is obviously a big factor in terms of the history of the spread of global English. And American hegemony hasn't hurt either. No, be- exactly. Yeah, uh, that's, the, that's the focus of it now, of course, is the fact that it's uh, you know, spoken so widely in the States. You begin your book with a mid-18th century definition of English from Samuel Johnson, which reads, Belonging to England, thence English is the language of England. Was he making a point about the colonials of the New World? extent that's certainly true there's an element of you know this is our language hands off about it probably um, but at the same time you know that's still to some extent that definition was probably true it probably felt in the mid 18th century that the focus the, the center of english uh, was still in britain um, it's it was the standard english spoken in london where johnson was that was felt to be the variety whereas of course that's very much changed now I've heard that American English, especially in our South, is closer to the way words were pronounced in England in the 17th and 18th centuries, that 
pronunciation has changed more in Britain than it has changed here. That's that's often the case, certainly. Yeah, that um, you know one of the things about has the English language continued to change in Britain after. Um, the sort of settlement in, of America. So some of the changes that have happened in British English didn't happen in, in the States, um, particularly in areas that were more sort of cut off, more rural. Um, so we do see quite a lot of preservation of older features of British English in American usage. Um, like, for instance, um, the past tense of dive, which for me would be dived, but is commonly dove in the States, is just a, an earlier form of that verb that's been preserved and hasn't been changed. Or the word uh, got in Britain, we say gotten. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Yeah, so that, that again is, I mean, we still, we still talk about ill-gotten gains. We have that preserved in a certain phrase, but otherwise we say got. Um, that's right. And also some of those pronunciations can still be heard in, you know, that your pronunciation of got it sounds more like a kind of uh, some area, some, one of the sort of northern dialect forms of, um, of British English today because settlers to the States came from different parts of um, uh, British Isles and therefore took different accents with them, and some of those have been preserved in different pockets of the States. We have a caller from Staten Island, Zubon. Zoban? Yes, hi, it's Zoban. Go ahead. Uh, uh, I want to ask the guests whether or not English was the original language of the British, because I did some courses in Old English here in uh, Drew University, but I'm not quite sure. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the difficult question about what exactly the original language might be. I mean, it certainly, it, it takes us right back to the language spoken by the Anglo-Saxons, who were the Germanic tribes that invaded Britain in the 5th century. And that we call Old English, and that's the, the original form of the, the language that we're speaking now. Now, um, you, you write that linguists have attempted to reconstruct ancient Germ Germanic, of which there's no written language. How do they do that, and how do they know that it is similar to what was spoken in England at the time? Well, they, what, what, it, what you can... I mean, the, the Germanic language group um, from which English is derived, we have written records of Anglo-Saxon used around the 7th century, but that's the earliest written record. And the tribes, the Anglo-Saxons, who came from the um, Germanic homeland in northern Europe... Um, there is a kind of common language that was spoken by them and by the ancestors of the Scandinavian tribes, so the languages that are now Norwegian, Danish, and uh, Icelandic, and so on, and also other Germanic languages like German and Dutch. These all come from a core single ancestor at one point, but because those tribes were illiterate, we don't have any written record of them. But by comparing the forms that survive in the earliest written records, and particularly important here is the language called Gothic, which was the language of the Goths, um, and that survives from an earlier stage, so it's the earliest surviving Germanic language. So by comparing the, the, the earliest surviving records, we can try and reconstruct what the original forms might have looked like. And that takes us back to an unrecorded stage of Germanic, which is the ultimate ancestor of all of those languages. Did they, they all come to the British Isles uh, through invaders? Yeah, the, the, um, that's certainly true of the um, Anglo-Saxons Anglo who came to the British Isles. But you know, again, the question about what's the earliest British language is, of course, there were people already in Britain at the time that they arrived, uh, namely the Celts, who spoke, who spoke 
um, a Celtic language. Um, they were mostly then pushed into the peripheries, into the areas, the sort of more uh, secluded geographical areas by the Anglo-Saxons, um, and they settled in parts of northern Scotland, in Wales, and in the southwest, in Cornwall, took their languages with them, which is why the Welsh and um, Scottish Gaelic um, areas are now, you know, still spoke, Celtic languages are still spoken there. So they go back to an earlier kind of stage of, of the spoken language in Britain, but they became much more peripheral immediately after the settlement of the Anglo-Saxons because they came over and then conquered and dominated and settled. When they started writing, didn't Old English have a different spelling system than the one we use today? And, yeah, that's right. And the so, pronouns were very different from the ones we use now? Lots of differences. I mean, actually, if you looked at a piece of Old English today, most people wouldn't be able to make head or tail of it um, because it just looks so very different. In fact, it looks much more like modern German. Um, the spelling is different because it's partly more phonetic because they were determining how to write down the language for the first time. What they were able to do was say, OK, how are we going to spell this sound? How are we going to spell this one? And so there were much closer representations of the pronunciation. And then nowadays, our spelling and our pronunciation are much more divergent, um, whereas in, in the early stages, they could be much more phonetic. It's also different because the writing system that they used was the Roman alphabet, which was, of course, developed for originally writing Latin. And they knew that alphabet because of Christianity, which was brought over from Rome at that time. So they used the Latin alphabet, but they also had to modify it slightly to make it more appropriate for writing down English. And to do that, they also drew upon another alphabet, which they knew from their time in the Germanic homeland, which is the runic alphabet. Um, and so they took a number of runic letters and added them. And so that also adds to the sense of how different it looks. Liz in Brooklyn asks about the glottal pronunciations found in Old and Middle English. Why don't they remain in contemporary English? Uh, well, they do remain in the spelling of, of words like cough or night. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So this is to do with the fact that when the Anglo-Saxons were writing down the language, they were representing the way they pronounced those words quite closely. So, for instance, the word that we spell K-N-I-G-H-T, they pronounced it knicht. And so it made sense to them to spell it that way. Now, that pronunciation lasted for another thousand years, roughly. And so by 1500, people were still pronouncing it that way. Um, and that's the moment at which our spelling system began to be fixed and standardized. Up until then, people could vary their spelling. But by the time that the printing press was introduced and notions of standard English were introduced, spelling became fixed. Ironically, it was shortly after that, people stopped pronouncing the initial k and the h sound. And so the spelling because it was fixed, preserved it, but the pronunciation ceased to. And because we've never actually changed our spelling system since then, we've preserved the pronunciations of the Anglo-Saxons. When in history does English as we might recognize it today first appear? I'd say that was probably the 18th century, where it starts to look very much like a, a modern form of English. There are still some differences in the way that the words are spelt, tendency to capitalize in the first letters of all nouns and things that make it look a bit different. Um, but the vocabulary has settled down into, into words that we, we tend to recognize today. The grammar is similar, and the spelling is very similar. So it's post-Shakespearean, post-King James? Yeah, I think so. I mean, <clears throat> it's true to say that most people can read Shakespeare and 
think of it as their own language, but they probably need to look up quite a lot of words. There are some differences in the way that it was pronounced um, and uh, changes in the pronoun system. You know, it still has the old vowel pronoun, which has subsequently fallen out of use. Um, so, you know, Shakespeare's becoming more modern, but I think the 18th century, which was an important period in the history of English for standardizing and fixing the language. You know, we've already quoted Samuel Johnson, the first, not the very first, but the, but the first most important dictionary of the English language. And it's also the period in which people wrote grammars of English, uh, guides to pronunciation, and tried to establish all the rules and set them down in writing. Let's take a call from Tessa in Queens. Hi, uh, Tessa. Hello. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, my question is, how did the in, uh, invasion of William the Conqueror influence the English language? Well, it gave us a lot of words, that's for sure. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's a huge, huge factor because the, the difference between the language pre the conquest, which is really Old English, and that after, which we call Middle English, is, is hugely different. And that's why we have this different label for the firm, because they look so very different. But, and you're absolutely right, the main factor is that the vocabulary, the Old English vocabulary was replaced by large numbers of French loan words, borrowings from French, and that affects the language a whole different uh, in all sorts of ways. So it gives us lots of um, uh, core words in the vocabulary. So we might think about um, the terms that we use to refer to members of our family. Well, we still have old English words for father, mother, and sister, and brother. But as soon as we go slightly further out from that and think about the niece and the nephew and the cousins and uncles and aunts, these are all French words. Many words that we use today that we don't notice as French come from that period. And so it's, it totally transformed the English language. It's why, you know, it's one of the main reasons why Old English, and which looks like modern German, um, that, that the, the changes that happened to English that made it so different from the way that the other Germanic languages look today really takes us back exactly to that point when the conquest when the Norman Conquest happened. Didn't it all, didn't some of the words also <clears throat> that were introduced distinguish people uh, as being Norman as opposed to Anglo-Saxon? For example, pig and pork, cow and beef. And I could probably come up with a whole bunch of others. That's absolutely right. Yeah, exactly. Um, lamb and mutton. You know, that, that tells us something about the um, social interaction of these two groups, I think. So that... Um, the Anglo-Saxon words are the ones that were used by the peasant farmers who were tending to the animals in the stables, um, the cow, and then the, the Norman um, lords and barons used their, their words were used to describe the meat of the animal when it was put on the plate at a banquet. Um, and, you know, that was the kind of re relationship between the two languages at that point, that French was the language that you used if you were an aristocrat who was um, of a high social class, and English almost became an entirely spoken language because it was used by the illiterate peasant classes. But you write that today's English is still Germanic at its core. What about the structure of a sentence? In German, the verb is usually at the end. Are we using... French structure with words that are mostly German? Yeah, that's, that's, that, that's a good way of characterizing it, I think. I mean, if you go back to Old English, the word order is very much more like modern German, so you do have that tendency to put the verb at the end. 
um, or to have the verb second if it comes after an adverb. You know, all these are Germanic um, systems. But they rely on a system of grammar that uses in endings at the ends of words to tell you what the relationship between the words in the sentence is. So you can have a more flexible word order in German and in Old English because these special endings tell you this is the subject and this is the object. What is and Grimm's Law? Grimm's Law? That, that goes back to the, this um, stage that we call the, um, the Germanic language group, going back to that the prehistoric, the before written record versions of the, um, of the Germanic language. And what it showed was that the Germanic language group goes back to, is part of a much bigger group, which we call Indo-European, which is the ancestor of all of the, or most of the modern European languages and a number of the Indian languages, which is a kind of mind-boggling idea that these many diverse and divergent languages, totally incomprehensible to other speakers today, were originally just one language spoken by tribes probably somewhere in modern Ukraine. Called Indo-European um, today? Called, yeah, that's called the Indo-European language family, and so we call the, the original language Proto-Indo-European. But of course, we're going way back before literacy, so there are no written records, so they're reconstructions again. But what we can see with um, the Germanic language family is that it differs in very regular ways from other members of that language family group. So, for instance, if you compare languages in the Romance language group, which are the ones that derive from Latin, so like French, Italian, Spanish, and then you compare them with Germanic groups languages, you can see that there are some, some structural similarities, like take the word um, father in English, and that word is parter in Latin, or pair in French. They're the same word, but there's one difference. The per becomes f. And we can see that similarity, or that difference, across a number of words. Um, the word fish goes back to the Latin pisces, which is the same as the French poisson. These are regular changes that have happened that set the Germanic group apart from the other groups and Grimm's law, Grimm, what Grimm discovered, this is Jacob Grimm incidentally the, the same man who also compiled the folk tales of the Grimm brothers who was a great German philologist in the 19th century and what he discovered was that the, these were not just you know, sort of random differences they can all be traced back to a, a natural uh, break between these two where the tribes must have set themselves apart and then this particular sound change happened I'm speaking with Simon Horobin, H-O-R-O-B-I-N, professor of English language and literature at the University of Oxford, a fellow of Magdalen College. He's written extensively on the history, structure, and use of the English language and is the author of Does Spelling Matter? Also a number of books on the history of English and the language of Chaucer. His latest, the one we are using uh, as the basis of this conversation is How English Became English, A Short History of a Global Language, published by Oxford University Press. And we will continue our conversation and take a lot of calls right after this. Singulars and plurals are so different. Bless my soul. Has it ever occurred to you that the plural of half is whole <laughs> a bunch of tooth is teeth a group of foot is feet and two canaries make a pair 
They call it a parakeet. We're talking about how English became English on today's Please Explain. It's also the title of a book by Simon Harubin, who's our guest. The book is published by Oxford University Press. And lots of people have been calling in, so let's start taking some of those calls. Cindy from Manhattan, you're on the air. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Leonard. I believe that you sort of answered my question, but I wondered at what point we really started um, changing the um, English words and adopting them from the French or the Spanish uh, more so than, you know, like the period that, that the guest described. Um, I, I'm also... I'm uh, not sure I understand what you mean, but English language. English does incorporate words from all over the world, partly from the British colonies, but also if a word uh, is useful, mm-hmm. a German word, Weltanschauung for uh, zeitgeist or whatever, mm-hmm. we just we just appropriate the appropriate it. Whereas um, Professor Harubin, uh, the the French try to keep their language a, a bit purer. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and that's actually true of Germanic languages. They have a tendency to form new words by compounding or creating words within the language, whereas English has been tend- has tended to take words much more in from outside. And you're right that the French have often had felt that there was a need to keep the language pure. <clears throat> and still, even today, they prefer to, you know, c- create their own words rather than le hashtag and so on. Um, but of for English, it's been normally about the pattern has been to borrow from other languages. And, you know, the period that we described, the Middle English after the conquest, is where we see dramatic numbers of French words. But even then, in, in the 16th and 17th century, the, the era of, um, uh, of colonization, we see lots of encounters with other um, countries. So we see borrowings from a whole wide range of words there. Um, and then as the empire um, spread, we see lots of Indian loan words coming in and from the Far East. Um, and words from the classical languages will continue through scientific exploration and the, the need to, to coin and form new words for scientific terminology. So it's been an ongoing process in the history of English. But we still borrow words from the French, like garage and ballet and cuisine. Mm, uh, and, yeah. and they did and not come it. over with the Normans. Yeah, well, that's an interesting one. I mean, you're right that um, there are different stages of French borrowing, and you can sometimes see that because there are some French words that we just don't notice are French anymore, and that partly because they've been assimilated f- fully. So color, for instance, might, might be an example. Mm-hmm. Um, we think of it as, a, as an English word center as another one, whereas um, others where we've preserved the French pronunciation or, and or spelling tend to be ones that came in more like the 18th century, which was another period where French words were particularly high status, where the French um, manners and courtesy and etiquette were so highly prized, therefore speaking in a French way um, and sounding French and using French spelling. So even some English words, like the word biscuit, which had always been spelt B-I-S-K-E-T, was changed to make it look like the French spelling of biscuit. Um, and also words like garage. It's interesting, your pronunciation of that is quite different now to the, 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 the most common English one, garage, because in, in English, English, that word has been fully nativized, so now it sounds more like a, an English pronunciation, whereas originally, of course, it would have been closer to your own pronunciation of garage, which is closer to the French one. Now, we also borrow from the Spanish, for example. Uh, I was told once that there was no word for or- the color orange 
in the English language until the fruit started showing up with the name naranja, and that became orange. And, yeah, that's and the right. color became orange as well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? We think of color terms as being ones that would be standard parts of the language and always have been there. But actually, what happens if you go back to the earliest forms is that things that were orange were called red. Mm-hmm. Um, there just wasn't the kind of um, ability to distinguish and discriminate in the way until, as you say, words from fruits or from often from plants, flowers, were introduced and borrowed as color terms. And that, interestingly, that, that one that you particularly mention goes back to a word... Uh, naranj, and in fact, it's because we've mistakenly understood a uh, naranj to be an orange, hmm. but the word becomes orange. Malcolm from Manhattan, hi, you're on the air. Malcolm, we're on delay, so you come to the phone. Okay, I'm going to go to the next call. I'm sorry. Uh, how about Ted from Kent Lakes? Hello, Leonard. Yes, Ted. Ted. I, I, I wanted to ask your guest uh, particularly about a single word, faucet. Mm-hmm. It's what you go to the kitchen. Oh, I thought you meant Farrah faucet. No, I wish I did. Is that a different <laughs> program? <laughs> um, you go to the kitchen or the bathroom and you turn on the faucet. Mm-hmm. Now, why that word in particular, Ted? I don't turn on the faucet, of course. I turn on the tap. And, you know, it's a nice example. I don't know if this is why you're asking, but it's an example of a word where there is a difference between British and American English. And often, again, these are examples of of um, usages that go back to the earlier form of English that were taken over to the States with the earliest settlers. So actually that word is found in Middle English in the, the period immediately after the conquest. Um, it's a French borrowing, as many of those words are, um, and it is used to describe a bung or something that you put into a, um, a barrel mm-hmm. to, keep the, um, to keep the liquid in. And that's true of a number of these American differences, like the word fall, again, is one that goes right back to um, Middle English. It was the older form of way of describing the, the season that we call autumn. Well, we um, call it autumn, too. But uh, okay. I had an experience when I went to art school in London, and I, my first day I asked the girl next to me if, she could, uh, if I could borrow an eraser, and she had me a razor blade. And I said, no, an eraser. And we went through this long, complicated thing. And then, I, of course, it turned out to be a rubber. Mm. Yeah. Which would mean a totally different thing in the United States, yeah. which we cannot talk <laughs> exactly. about. Yeah, yeah, that's the trouble with these. You know, they're, they're sort of small differences, but they can be very difficult in terms of communication. Malcolm from Manhattan. Hi, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Um, I'm curious to know uh, if English ever use genders as most other languages seem to do and I find it you know, bogging down really having to wonder how many you know whether something is uh, masculine feminine or German new, neutral uh, was there ever a, a point that we, we did do the genders or if we didn't why didn't we yeah, no, you're absolutely right. If you go back, just like modern German has masculine, feminine, and neuter nouns, Old English had that system as well. It goes back to the earliest forms of Germanic. Um, and, um, you know, again, it's one, of the, it's one of those interesting things about the way that the language has changed is that it's, English is the only Germanic language to have lost um, these uh, grammatical genders. 
Um, and the reason for it is that it goes back to the, the Norman conquest and those dramatic changes we were describing. And so I mentioned how the, the grammar of Old English relies upon these special endings that tell you which is an, um, uh, a subject and which is an object. And those special endings also are related to the grammatical gender. But following the Norman conquest, those grammatical endings ceased to be used, partly because of the influence of French speakers who don't have that system. And so grammatical gender was lost over the century or so after the conquest. We've also lost the, f- the, f- the distinction between the familiar and the more formal. We don't say thee and thou anymore. And uh, the plural you uh, is also the singular you, in, mm. but that wasn't always the case. No, that's right. So if you go back to Old English, there's, there are two pronouns, a singular and a plural, thou and ye. And that system survived right up to Shakespeare. So it, it survived for quite a long time, really. And actually, you might think it's quite an important distinction to be able to distinguish between you singular and you plural. The reason that it fell out of use seems to be because it also developed, under the influence of French, the tendency to use the plural form as a polite form when addressing a singular person. You know how French distinguishes between tu and vous depending on whether you want to show um, intimacy or whether you want to show formality. And that system was adopted in English as well. But because we're such a reserved nation, we tended, when we weren't sure whether to call someone thou or ye, to default to the formal pronoun. And so the thou pronoun became a very marked one, only used if you were absolutely certain that this was appropriate for the relationship. And so most people went around using the you pronoun. And consequently, the thou pronoun dropped out of use entirely. And we're left with a slightly odd system where we can't distinguish between you singular, you plural. Although, of course, in some varieties of English and some American varieties as well, have developed new ways of getting around that problem. Y'all, yous, and so on. Have the other languages of the British Isles, Welsh, Scots, uh, Gaelic, uh, have they influenced uh, British English or has it just been the other way around? some extent, they're mostly the influence of the Celtic languages um, really is still only found in place names and names of rivers, going back to those very early days when the Anglo-Saxons came and the Celts had already settled parts of the British Isles. And so the River Avon, which is the one that goes through Stratford-on-Avon, where Shakespeare grew up, that's the Welsh word for water, the Avon. And there are a number of those examples. But otherwise, it's very limited. And that, again, I think tells us something about the extent to which the Celts were pretty much driven out or forced to um, accommodate to the Anglo-Saxons rather than had much influence. Now, every so often, someone comes along and says we should simplify spelling. And George Bernard Shaw uh, was one of them. He said uh, with the current spelling, fish could be spelled G-H-O-T-I. But... uh, There's been a lot of resistance to that. Uh, Isn't it important to see the history of the language through its spelling? Yes, that's, I mean, that's, the, that's my view, I have to say. Um, I suppose I'm a bit biased. Um, some people would say that um, it would be better than being able to see the history through the spelling, to have a spelling system that was more phonetic and therefore was easier for children and, and foreign learners of the language to learn how to read, so that if you could sound out the word, that would be simpler than being, able, than being confronted with K-N-I-G-H-T and being told, well, that just tells you about how the Anglo-Saxons pronounced it. But 
there are other factors to take into account, namely that we don't just sound out words when we're reading. We do that when we're learning to read, but subsequently, actually, a phonetic system can be more of a hindrance because, of course, um, if you have words that are pronounced the same way, then you are obliged to spell them the same way. We have to leave it there. My guest has been Simon Harubin. His book, How English Became English, A Short History of Global Language. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks for having me.